hit me. From Studio P in Sausalito, the home of the hit, it's time for... Suck Attack. The number one award-seeking comedy podcast about comedy... Podcast. And here's your host, internationally recognized comedy podcast podcaster, Mark Mark Hershaw. Hershaw. Mark Hershaw. Hershaw. Mark Hershaw. Hershaw. Mark Hershaw. Yes, it's me, Mark Hershon, your host in rattan patio furniture covered for the winter, and this is Epi 121 of Succotash, the comedy podcast podcast. It's another Succotash Chats edition featuring my recent interview with Franklin Leonard, the creator and host of the Blacklist Table Reads. We take the best screenplays that we find on the website, get a bunch of working actors together in a radio studio, in this case the Earwolf Studios here in Los Angeles, record essentially a contemporary radio play, and then the, the sort of brilliant sound designers at, uh, at Earwolf put together, um, you know, sort of post-production work on the radio play, and then they put it out to the world for everyone to listen to. There's a little snippet of our upcoming chat with Franklin Leonard. He's got a pretty fascinating history, including working with both Leonardo DiCaprio and Will Smith's production companies. We'll talk about that and a whole lot more. The Blacklist Table Reads is a pretty unique podcast just starting its second season, It features recorded table readings of full-on feature-length motion picture scripts that have not yet been produced, but have been voted as the most popular on the Blacklist website, which our guest is also the brains behind. Just to give you a taste of what it's like to hear a movie being read aloud, it's, first of all, kind of like an old radio drama. Here are a few minutes from a movie they read last season called Terrible Parents. Exterior luxurious suburban home day. Howie, Stephanie, and Oliver walk up to a huge, elegant house. Howie porting some Tupperware. Stephanie gapes, nervous. Hey, relax. Working with the other parents is just like doing a group project back in school. You know, we read the same books, we've got the same goal. We'll be accepted here, okay? We will be accepted. I always just did all the work in group projects so much faster. The parents exhale nervously, then notice that Oliver is hanging back, also nervous. They kneel down to comfort him. Hey, buddy, I... I know it's scary joining a whole new group of kids, but these kids won't be mean to you, okay? They can't wait to hang out and read stuff and make stuff and explore stuff with you, I promise. Really? You just be yourself and you'll make so many friends. Oliver smiles. How he stands, Stephanie adopts a cool, criminal air. She looks over her shoulder, speaks in a low voice, and subtly slips a handful of candy into Oliver's pocket. But just in case a man with a pocket full of candy doesn't have to worry about making friends, you know what I'm saying? Oliver smiles, excited. Stephanie stands. She and Howie exchange a wink and smile. Hey, and if you meet any grown-ups, tell them your dad has lots of good beer at home, okay? Don't recruit the boy to do your... The door opens. It's Carol Dunhill, 39, old money, always drunk and depressed. You must be Stephanie and Howard. Yeah! Howie, please. I'm Carol Dunhill, and this must be Oliver. Carol stares coldly at Oliver as she sips her cocktail. Howie and Stephanie wait politely. Carol finally looks up and smiles. Welcome to our home. Interior Dunhill living room, day. Carol shows Howie and Stephanie into the fabulous room. There's a lovely party going on. Stephanie sends Oliver to the play area with the other kids. Carol points out the assembled couples. So this is the new class at Trailblazers. Impressed yet? That's my husband, Randall. We'd be the Dunhills. Over there are the Jacksons, the Prestons, and those are the Fatties. Oh, (laughs) the Flaherty's. That's not very nice, is it? I didn't say it was. Everyone, this is Stephanie and Howie, Oliver's parents. Everyone has been waiting to meet them. Howie shakes hands with J.R. Jackson, 30s, bit of a bro. Hey, J.R. Jackson, nice to meet you. Stephanie hugs Franny Jackson, 30s, a hugger. Congratulations on that scholarship. Thank you. I didn't realize it was such news already. We know everything about each other. Oh, yeah. Who's we? She's interrupted by another hug. After intros have been made, the parents return to whatever they were talking about. Howie and Stephanie stand, smiling politely at the edge of the circle for an awkward moment. Howie points at the buffet. Comfort zone. They head for the food. Once they're out of earshot, the parents turn and stare at Oliver, examining him. You think Lindsay will show up? Gosh, let's hope not. We'll hear more of that kind of thing from the first script of the second season, which just kicked off a couple of weeks ago with a movie called Three Months. I'll pop it in during my interview. 
But before we get to the interview with Mr. Leonard, we've got our Burst of Durst segment with our own political comedian and social commentator, Mr. Will Durst. A classic Henderson's Pants ad coming up, a dip into the tweet sack, and at the very end of the show, yet another acapella masterpiece by our friend Abner Surd, whose Tall Tales and Shaggy Dogs podcast offering is available via iTunes. But for now, take it away, Mr. Durst. Hey guys, Will Durst here with a few choice words about the huge way Donald Trump has changed politics. Judged on a scale of 1 to 10, it would lie somewhere in the mid-six figures. First off, future candidates no longer have to worry about looking ridiculous. Actual clowns are now allowed to emerge from the clown car. Absurdity is in. And rationality has been swept forever off the table. Two, speaking from the hip requires way too much preparation. And number three, the truth is moot. Veracity is for dummies. The oddly quaffed developer hasn't just lowered the credibility bar. He buried it with a front loader so deep you couldn't find it with a diesel-powered metal detector. Since time immemorial, politicians have stretched the truth, but the Donald has finally snapped any scintilla of elastic connection to reality. The man who wrecked rectitude. Got a point you want to make, but don't have any facts to support your position? Just make stuff up. Tell your supporters what they want to hear. Doesn't matter if it's true or not, as long as it fits the narrative. Don't answer questions or respond to issues or events. Just keep repeating your dubious claims, citing improbable sources. People who know. Smart people. Very successful people. Who cares how many times PolitiFact labels one of your statements, pants on fire? They're part of the media. Buddies with Dan Rather and Brian Williams, right? The only thing genuine about Donald Trump is his facility to suck up to the lowest common denominator. His low-information voters are so used to being lied to by religious guys who cheat on their wives and presidents who argue the definition of the word is. It's refreshing when a candidate doesn't care if you know he's lying up front. Even his hair is phony. So as the GOP heads down the final lap to the nomination finish line, let's bid a fond farewell to the great communicator and make room for the fabulous fabricator. For Succotash, the comedy podcast podcast, I'm Will Durst. There is, as he says, Will Durst, who has his own website, willdurst.com, and you can find info on his big fat year-end kiss-off comedy show, taking place all around the San Francisco Bay Area during the last couple of weeks of the year. We'll be right back after this important message from our sponsor. Season's greetings, friends, from me, Bill Haywatt, and everyone at Henderson's Pants. Now, although this is supposed to be the happiest time of the year, it's also a time for frayed nerves, temper tantrums, and road rage. And now there's all this brouhaha about what to even call the events around the winter solstice. Well, far be it from Henderson's Pants to ruffle any feathers, so you won't be hearing us uttering the C-word anytime soon, which is why Henderson's is introducing their holiday pants just in time for this festive season. Intentionally non-denominational, Henderson's holiday pants are just what the discriminating celebrant is wearing this year. Perfect for office parties, family get-togethers, or late-night shopping sprees, these snappy trousers are designed to honor every persuasion of winter celebration. How can one pair of pants do all of that, you might ask? Simple, we might answer. Because the these holiday pants are made by a special group of Amish craftsmen in a barn covered with hex signs in the middle of Pennsylvania Dutch country. They weave the sturdy cotton twill fabric themselves before stitching each pair together by hand. These humble tailors have no holiday celebration, no electricity, and no alcohol. They literally live for the opportunity to craft each and every pair of Henderson's holiday pants. And they don't care if it's Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, or that holiday around the God Baby with the decorated pine tree and the name that makes some people so very angry. Originally designed for Ebenezer Scrooge, Hermie the Elf, and the Grinch that stole Christmas. 
Henderson's Holiday Pants are available wherever there's a dude dressed like Santa outside, ringing a bell and begging for your spare change. Happy Holidays from Henderson's, makers of fine trousers and pantaloons since 1 AD. And now back to Succotash. That reminds me, our friend and booth announcer Bill Haywatt, who was on vacation for a couple of weeks, he's now back, but he's under the weather, so apologies to Harry White, who's been kind enough to write some commercials for Henderson's Pants, but we've not been able to get them out in front of Bill yet. But we will. Okay, let's get into my visit with our special guest for this episode, Franklin Leonard. I caught up with him via Skype last week from Los Angeles. The quality's actually pretty decent. There are a couple of audio dropouts, but for the most part, it's an easy listen, not unlike Franklin's ear movies themselves. And I have a special extra audio bonus for you after the interview is over. Never heard before on this or any other podcast, so stay tuned. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. It's a busy time for us right now, but uh, but I'm holding, I'm holding it all together for now. <laughs> For the time being, talk to me in like a week and a half and we'll see how I'm doing. But uh, but no, it was a very busy weekend, got everything done we needed to get done, and now we're just square in the middle of blacklist voting that will end on Wednesday. So it's uh, definitely a busy time. Well, welcome to Succotash, and let's, uh, let's bring the, the listeners up to speed on, uh, on what, uh, what you've been doing, because so far we've not, uh, we've not played a, a smidge for my listeners, but we will, as part of this interview, play, uh, play some of what they've been hearing, and uh, they will have, uh, hopefully I'll have my review up next week after Thanksgiving of uh, okay. the first, uh, the first uh, ear movie, yeah. uh, which I just listened to this last weekend. Very interesting. Which, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's really good. It's, um, I, I have to tell you, I actually have quite a history of... Uh, this idea of recording movies, uh, myself, I uh, worked on a project with Dana Carvey uh, years ago, around 2006, 2007, and uh, he was living up where I am in Northern California, and we said, well, how are we going to get this in front of people? And it was kind of a very dry comedy. There wasn't a whole lot of comedy on the page in terms of jokes, so we recorded the whole thing. It, oh, wow. took, it took months, by the way. Bet, yeah. Between him and our audio guy, both real perfectionists, they just had to get everything exactly right. And as it turned out, nobody even got to listen to it, pretty much. But <laughs> it was an interesting yeah, exercise. I, was, I, was, I, I remain a huge Dana Carvey fan. It's funny. I mean, my, one of my sort of... Like, the first, I, mean, I, big, I sort of came of age when he was on Saturday Night Live, so that whole era was very much like, defined my sense of comedy. But... And I remember uh, him as Bush and John Lovitz as Dukakis. Yes. Uh, during the 88 campaign. And that was like the beginning of my like, you know, formative political education was that, that first debate sketch. Uh, yeah. It's uh, he, he, he kind of for comedy formula for a lot of people, I think. But uh, before we get too much further, let me tell people that uh, we're listening to Franklin Leonard who is uh, the brains behind, what's your official title, the executive producer? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, well, for the podcast, I'm the, I'm the host, uh, executive producer of the podcast, um, and then that's sort of an outgrowth of my work as the founder and CEO of the Blacklist organization generally. And uh, so let's give uh, the listeners a little background on what the Blacklist is and what you guys do. So uh, the short version is that uh, just about 11 years ago, I was working as a, uh, a creative executive for Leonardo DiCaprio's film production company, and my job was to find great screenplays either that we could make um, as a production company or that had been written by writers with whom we should be in business. And so uh, I, I had gone several months without reading anything that I felt confident walking into my boss's office and slapping down on the desk and saying, I'll see you tomorrow, and... <laughs> And you're not going to fire me for being so presumptuous. Uh, and, uh, and so I took a survey of my peers and said, send me a list of your ten favorite screenplays that haven't yet been produced. And in exchange, I'll send you back the combined list. That's what I did. Slapped a quasi-subversive name on it, the blacklist. And it became uh, a sort of a viral sensation back when the notion of an Internet viral sensation was a relatively new concept. Yeah. And we did that. We've done that every year for the last, this year will be our 11th year. Um, and it is turned into something of an arbiter of taste in the film industry, and uh, and I think because and it has become a predictor of great success for a lot of these projects, and that I think was why it's become an arbiter of taste. But three of the last seven best pictures, eight of the last sixteen screenwriting Oscars were scripts on the blacklist. 
Um, and then three years ago, we launched a website that allows anyone on Earth to upload their screenplay, have it evaluated for a small fee, and if it's good, we would tell the entire industry, hey, that's a great script, you should pay attention to it. Uh, we've gotten literally hundreds of writers signed and, and gotten their scripts optioned. And one of the ways we decided we wanted to promote these scripts was to uh, record a podcast where we basically take the best screenplays that we find on the website, get a bunch of working actors together in a radio studio, in this case, the Earwolf Studios here in Los Angeles, record essentially a contemporary radio play, and then the, the sort of brilliant sound designers at, uh, at Earwolf put together, um, you know, sort of post-production work on the radio play, and then we put it out to the world for everyone to listen to. Well, that's cool. Um, the the uh, second season has just started, and I listened to Three Months, which was the... Uh, the first uh, ear movie, yep. as you guys refer to it on the podcast, yeah, um, and it's uh, it's kind of interesting because it's a pretty dicey uh, story, you know, for uh, sort of mainstream America to take into their ears. I think you know the story of a sort of coming of age story for a, a young gay man and uh, faced with the idea that he may or may not have contracted AIDS through some uh, negligent behavior on Indeed. his part. Um, it's definitely a dark comedy. Yeah. Um, and let me ask you this, because when we did this project with Dana, part of the thing was how much of the sort of, uh, narration do you put up? And it sounded like probably pretty much whatever was in the script got read, right? Yeah, no, well, we definitely do, you know, we, we give a little bit of guidance to the writers about how to optimize their screenplay for the audio form, but we really are trying to keep it as close to being the script that was read by one of our readers as possible. Um, and, you know, sometimes that will mean scaling back a little bit more on the uh, description, sometimes it will mean less. You know, we've got a script that's coming up in early January that is very heavy on narration and very heavy and very dense dialogue. Um, but, no, we want... We want the uh, the ear movie, if you will, to be as representative of the uh, the screenwriter's work as possible. You know, we sort of see ourselves as an organization that, that celebrates, uh, identifies, and celebrates great screenwriting. And we think the best way to do that is to hew as closely as possible to the screenwriter's vision for their work. Time card, day five. Exterior Miami Beach High School science building roof, evening. Wei Ling. Butch, a tad chubby, sits atop the science building drinking a 40 in sweats. She looks across the parking lot to the graduation ceremony taking place in the football stadium. Her classmates sit in the stands and wait for their diplomas. Their families cheer in the opposing bleachers. Caleb appears wearing a backpack. He sits beside Way. Yo, bitch, it's about time. Sorry, I had to borrow this from work. He pulls a bottle of cheap wine and two paper cups from his backpack. He pours generously and they toss them back. What I miss? Fuck if I know, I fell asleep when class treasurer Jen Lee dedicated her diploma to Jesus and Justin Bieber. God, I hate them all. Oh, fucking cheers to that. Wade drinks from her cup. Caleb chugs straight from the bottle like it's his job. So they make it to the ends yet? Caleb, Dom broke up with your ass because he's moving to L.A. and selling his soul to the devil or Ryan Seacrest or some shit. Get over it. Wade rips the bottle from Caleb. You don't get it, Way. I would have adopted Chinese babies with him. Gays can't adopt in Florida. Well, I'm trying to get out of Florida. Way too chugged straight from the bottle. All right. Academy for hipster queers who Instagram weird shit. Also known as art school. Caleb squints in the distance. Is that Naya Lopez? Ugh. Dom hasn't walked yet, Caleb. Now stop being a pussy and bend over for someone else already. I did. Way punches him in the arm. That's what I'm fucking talking about! That's why you've been so M.I.A. and weird. Okay, what do you mean weird? Well, there's video of you crashing in the storage room for the past four fucking days. Suzanne's pissed. Shit. Don't sweat it. I'll calm her down. Okay, please keep your inappropriate lesbian relationship to yourself. I'm in the middle of dinner. Caleb takes a swig from the bottle. Shut up. So, who is this dude? His name was Matias. He didn't speak a word of English and was part Argentine, part horse. Was? He flew back to Buenos Aires a few days ago. He either had to go back to work or had to get work done. I couldn't really understand. But um, he left me a letter. Caleb hands away the letter. Over the football loudspeaker, we hear the principal call the name. Dominic Marquez. Caleb takes out his Nikon and looks through the zoom. He sees his ex walk across the stage to get his diploma. Dom does the touchdown one-knee move, and the crowd erupts in laughter. Caleb looks like he could die. Caleb. As Wei reads, she goes ghost white. She puts the letter down. 
Okay, I I failed Spanish both times, but does this does this say Caleb doesn't turn to look at her, but instead tracks Dom as he goes back to his seat. He snaps out of it and jumps a bit when he feels Way give him a hug. Well, this hasn't happened since I punched my camera for calling you plus-size Sailor Moon. One thing I would add is I actually, you know, I, I do think that the, that three months is, it, it's, it's tough material. I, I actually find it, and, and certainly it would be, um, I think it might be considered slightly out of the mainstream because it is the story of a young uh, gay man, but... You know, increasingly, when I look sort of generationally, you know, we all know someone probably who is gay, um, and 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 you know, and the question is whether or not he has HIV. Um, I think really sort of gets you know after one event of sort of careless behavior, gets to sort of what a coming of age story usually is, which is confronting the reality that as you move into adulthood, your adult your your uh, choices have consequences, and how do we grapple with that reality as we sort of transition from being taken care of to having to be taken care of ourselves. Well said. Well said. Um, you know, the old adage in screenwriting is uh, don't tell, show. Yeah. Uh, and so in selecting the screenplays that you're going to use to put into audio, what sort of considerations do you give them in terms of somebody's going to be sitting back or riding their bike or on a treadmill and listening yeah. to this thing? Uh, so they're going to have to visualize. Um so, I, to get back to my question, what sort of considerations goes goes into that? Well, what I would say is that we tend to choose scripts that are going to work in the audio medium. And so what that means for me, at least, is, is that they're usually dialogue heavy and, and dialogue strong. Um, you know, there was a script on the annual Blacklist last year uh, called Yellowstone Falls. It was basically a, a, a story about a family of wolves escaping a zombie infestation in, a for- in the Yellowstone Park. Okay. So, obviously, there is no dialogue <laughs> wolves and zombies, and there's not a lot of back and forth there. So, like, something like that we would never be able to do, because it would literally just be a narrator sort of reading the direction. Um, (laughs) You know, we're choosing the best stuff, right? And so, you know, and and I think, you know, season two is a really good example, and we'll see this over the arc of the season, of very different storytelling styles, all of which lean more towards show than tell, but, you know, there, there are a number of different ways to show, and what we're just trying to do is, is share with our audience the best material, regardless of sort of style and tone, um, and, and hopefully give a, a nice survey of the different ways you can do it well and have people say, oh, my God, this is a great script. Someone should be making this. Someone should be representing this writer. Sure. Um, what? Uh, well, let's find out a little bit more about your background. I'm sure my listeners were intrigued when you mentioned Leonardo DiCaprio. So how did how did you get to where you are today. What, what did you start out doing in terms of uh, your connection to screenwriting, movie making, anything like that? It was a long and winding road. I was a movie fan growing up. You know, I grew up in West Central Georgia, Columbus, Georgia, about two hours south of Atlanta on the Alabama border. Um, I was a big nerd. I was basically Steve Urkel, like whilst <laughs> on television, living in the deep south. It was not a good look for my social life. Um, <laughs> And the upside of that is I did very well academically. I went to Harvard for undergrad. I, I very quickly realized that though I might have been a big fish in a small pond math-wise in the Deep South, uh, majoring in math at Harvard is a very different thing. Um, <laughs> I would say literally so. sitting next to kids who were one day going to win the Fields Medal and the MacArthur Genius Grant, and, and one of my classmates uh, just did this year. Wow. Uh, for work that he had already started, by the way, when he was in high school. Good Lord. So I realized that maybe math was not my chosen field. I went into, I studied social and political theory, thought I would go into politics. I actually helped run a congressional campaign in Cincinnati, Ohio, right out of college. Um, burned out on politics very quickly, moved to Trinidad, where my grandfather wrote for a newspaper down there for six months. Got bored of sitting on the beach with my laptop writing, which in retrospect was insane. <laughs> yeah, what were you thinking? Yeah, you know, you make bad decisions in your early 20s that you really can never go back on, and that that would be my big one. Um, so, yeah, and then I moved to um, New York City. I was a management consultant in New York, focusing primarily on media and entertainment. And um, shortly after 9-11, my entire analyst class got laid off for five months severance, and I stayed in New York, and I found that I was spending all of my time either watching movies or reading about the film industry. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, in the middle of a snowstorm, as often happens, I decided to go move to L.A. because it's warm, <laughs> and uh, see if I could figure out that movie industry thing instead of going to law school. So, 
Uh, I moved out to LA. My second day here, I had a drink with a friend of a friend who was an assistant at a creative artist agency. She mentioned that there was an agent uh, looking for an assistant, like at that moment. I sent my resume, and the next day I had an interview. The next day, I got offered the job on that Friday, and I started working there that next Monday. Wow. So I got very lucky that my first interview ended up being my first job offer. Um, I was an assistant at CAA for a year. Uh, I had a job as an executive working for John Goldwyn, uh, who had just left uh, running Paramount. Uh, then I went to go work for Leonardo DiCaprio's company for two years, which is when I started the Blacklist. Um, I was a casualty of regime change, if you will. Yeah. Uh, over there, and ended up going to work for Sidney Pollock and Anthony Minghella. Nice. Uh, for them for the last year of their lives. Um, and then I went to go work at Universal Pictures. I was there for two years, and then went to go work uh, helping run development for Will Smith's company, and left there almost exactly three years ago, um, and focused full-time on the blacklist. And that's when we built the website, and sort of began begun to turn it into a business that could serve the industry at large on a sort of real-time, 365 days a year basis, and uh, provide a, a bridge across the moat, if you will, to help writers get their work to Hollywood. Well, that's fantastic. You were able to kind of move sort of from one company's shadow to another until finally you kind yeah. of found your thing and were able to kind of emerge and have this uh, this very popular um, uh, endeavor. I mean, I'm certainly aware of it. As a, as a screenwriter, I've certainly, you know, known about it and that sort of thing. Uh, so it's, uh, it's very sort of enviable to... Uh, to see somebody who's uh, found kind of a, a unique niche. Yeah, or, or, or another way to say it would be fell ass backwards into a unique niche. Either, no, no, you uh, found a, no, you, you have to say you found a unique niche. I, like, I would love to claim the, the vision that would have been required to sort of create this with any long-term vision. But no, I, look, I was trying to do a very, fundamentally very selfish thing initially and find good scripts to read, and the best way... Uh, that I came up with was to be quasi-altruistic, and that became a thing. And then really my goal has been sort of not to screw it up while simultaneously expand the, the reach and impact that we can have on behalf of screenwriters. And, and haven't screwed it up yet, fingers crossed, knock on wood, I won't, um, but uh, so far so good. Now you've mentioned a number of projects have uh, gone on to some acclaim. Do you think yeah. having them in audio form uh, is, a, is a help? anywhere along the way in terms of selling a screenplay? Do executives listen to these things, or is this strictly for sort of public consumption? It's a great question, and I think we're, we're, we're too early in the product. Like, you know, the first podcast, where we just launched season two uh, last week, and the first first episode of the first season didn't go live until like late April, early May. So I think we're too early in the cycle to figure out exactly how much impact it has. Here's what I do know. Um, I know that in, right now in the industry, everyone's obsessed with sort of pre-sold properties, mm-hmm. um, and that can oftentimes mean a graphic novel that sold 10,000 copies. And a lot of our podcasts, you know, a lot of these scripts have now been heard by 30, 40, 50,000 people. So there is, if the standard of pre-sold or pre-awareness is 10,000, we, we're putting material into a pre-sold category. Yeah. Um, almost accidentally, and I do think that a lot of executives are listening to the podcast. You know, I hear it anecdotally from friends or people that I run into at social events in Hollywood, um, and I think part of it is, too, right, like, L.A. has very little public transportation, and very few people in the film actually take public transportation, um, so at a minimum, most people probably are stuck in their car for an hour a day, Yeah, and that is time that you cannot read, you cannot read screenplays, you can't get ahead. Um, and maybe you'll roll calls, but we all have a certain point at which we no longer want to roll calls. So um, my hope is, is that, you know, instead of, you know, rolling calls or, or doing whatever they're doing, um, maybe they're listening to the podcast. And maybe, you know, they listen to three months and say, God, this is actually a really good script. And I, it made me feel something. Maybe I should uh, look into to get into rights to it and try to make it. Um, you know, I genuinely don't know what will happen. I think worst case scenario, we're providing... You know, a solid two hours of entertainment every other week for set, like for several tens of thousands of people. But yes, it's my certainly my hope that the result of that will be an increase in the entrance around the scripts, and hopefully, a few of them will get made. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a, it's an enviable thing. I mean, uh, years ago, I used to run a, a improv group out of uh, the improv in Santa Monica, which is no longer there. But uh, we, had, I had this group of actors and comics and whatnot. And that was one of the ideas we had was let's record some scripts that we were talking about doing like sitcom pilots and stuff like that and just put them up on their feet 
uh, and just basically have an audio thing. So it seems like it would be something that sells. Like you mentioned, um, uh, people in Hollywood is kind of interesting. I found them to be sort of technologically slower than some other yeah. industries. Uh, I used to pit, I used to pitch stuff with PowerPoint like 15 years ago, and I'd set up my computer in uh, someone's uh, office, and they go, yeah. "What? You must have made people's faces melt off." Oh, I mean, yeah, they I go, <laughs> yeah, they go, they go, "What is this?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's look. It, it is definitely a business that has done things a certain way for a long time, and is incredibly resistant to change. Um, I think that that. That manifests itself in terms of the kind of movies the industry makes and, and in the way people present uh, person to person. I, I, it surprises me not at all that people were shot by PowerPoint because yeah. uh, I think to some extent they still are now in my experience. <laughs> it's, it's scary. Um, how long does it take to go sort of from package to plate when you go, okay, this this is our next script and we're going to record this and we're going to produce it down and get it out there. So how long does it take to actually record, edit, and get the thing produced? Yeah, so we take the script. Um, once we identify the stuff we're going to do for the season, uh, we work with the casting director, uh, Lauren and Jordan Bass, who have been amazing to cast them up. Um, that process usually takes about one or two weeks. Um, we record the entire thing in a single day, usually in one str- like one straight shot, um, just around the table. Because you're really hearing a near cold read. Uh, we take a, a brief break about halfway through for a bathroom break and, and water and stuff. Um, and then the post process, I think, it probably takes about three weeks for the, the the sound designers. I don't have a clear sense of that. The work they do is heroic to me. And if they told me it took them six months, I wouldn't be surprised because they do such a good job with it. Um, uh, Cody Scully and John Delore over at uh, Midroll. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, two weeks to cast, record one day. It, it probably takes about six weeks to get the whole thing packaged to plate. But, um, yeah, I mean, that, that, that work, it's not like it's full-time work. You know, I think they're, they're, they're doing other shows while they're doing ours. Sure. But, but in aggregate, that's about how long it takes. And is there, like, uh, classically on a movie, is there a director on the project that's helping to figure out what the tone's going to be and what the voices should sound like? Yeah, you know, the writer really is the director of these. Uh, you know, the writer's always there when we record. Um, they usually say a few words before we get started and answer any questions that the actors have about how individual scenes should be handled, and certainly if they're, if the actors begin to head in a direction that was not intended by the writer, then usually the writer will say, hey, actually, can we go back and do that again under these sort of uh, circumstances? Um, you know, I'll chime in from time to time, but that has more to do with, like, you know, oh, you stumbled over that line, can we get it again? Yeah, oh, yeah. can we stop for a second? And, you know, the scene calls for the sound of uh, coughing. Can we get you cough real quick? Okay, we got it. All right, let's you know, move on. Um, but no, it really is the writer... And I think a lot of the credit really also has to go to the actors. They do, um, for anyone who doubts that actors have talent, um, and, and I'll admit that at various times in my life I've been like, come on, almost anybody can do that. Give me a script, I can read it, and it'll be amazing. <laughs> um, it, is, it, is, it has been a real um, awe-inspiring experience for me, and a really amazing education, too, to watch actors get a great piece of material and then take it to an entirely another level based on their interpretation of it using just their voices. Um, I've been awed over and over and over again. I don't know that there's been a script that we've done where the actors' performances haven't added an entirely new level of the experience for me. Um, and I've been doing, you know, I've been reading screenplays probably close to a thousand a year uh, for the last 12 years. Now, do you ever have to tell the writers, now listen, this is as much control as you will ever have over your script? Yeah, I, I definitely think that, uh, well, I think fortunately most writers know that going in, um, but I definitely do have a conversation with them going in, like, relish this, because <laughs> when and if your movie gets made, you'll be lucky to be on set. Yeah. Um, but I actually think that that's kind of one of the things that I, I hope that we're changing, um, and I think we have seen a little bit of change in that in the industry generally. You know, as there's more competition for really good material, it gives the writers a lot more power with which to negotiate what their position is going to be in the process of making the movie. So, you know, Graham Moore was a producer on Imitation Game. I, that's not a normal scenario by any means, but I do think the fact that it was number one on the blacklist and very much in demand gave him a, a, a position to negotiate from uh, that allowed him to get maybe more than he would have otherwise. That's great. I, uh, I've had several movies uh, produced uh, at the Hallmark Channel. 
and uh, managed to worm my way in where they allowed me to be on the set for the entire production of all three movies. Well done. And, yeah, it was. It, it took a lot of sort of finessing <laughs> yeah. until they realized I wasn't trying to tell them how to make my movie. Then they were yeah. then they were cool with it. But one of the things I found out it, it's such a collaborative process, and I'd be curious to see if your writers find this to be true. One of the the last of the three movies that got made, we actually had the luxury of being able to do a full read through the day before shooting started. We had the whole principal cast, and I was taking notes like a madman because we had people like John Larroquette, um, who was uh, the the lead in the movie, and we were doing this read through, and they were ad libbing lines left and right. So I was scribbling notes, and the next day I turned in a bunch of rewrite pages. Uh, as shooting began, and it was such a great luxury to have. I think, unfortunately, the, our writers leave the recording experience with a lot that they'd like to change about their scripts, having heard it performed, oh, and there's really no way to accommodate that. Um, there hasn't been a lot of that. I, mean, I think a lot of the writers that come in to record for us uh, are doing so because they want to... They have a great deal of reverence for the work that's on the page, mm-hmm. and they want to realize the, the specifically the ambitions of the writer... Do I think that it would improve if they were ad-libbing? Yes, probably. Um, because then you, know, you can ad-lib and then the writer can sort of, like you, like you did, take that and pass each it up into a way that makes the thing even better. But yeah, I always ask the writers actually when we leave, like, how much do you want to change now? And, and we've yet to, I've yet, I've yet to have an experience where someone's like, oh, perfect, I did everything perfectly. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it usually does lay bare some moments that could be improved. It's amazing, because you, you hear directors uh, talk a lot since they're usually kind of at the front end of these things, talking about how, you know, they, they would they edit till the last minute because there's always something to change. And as a writer who was invited onto the set, I would get to go into ADR at the end, and I would change lines with an actor's face turned half away from the camera because I go, wait, I can fix half of that line. Yep. Yeah, and that, that's, you know, and, and again, I think that's, that is, the, that is the story of making film, is that it is, a, it, is, it is very much an editorial process. I mean, who was, uh, I can't remember who it was, said that uh, a movie is written three times, first on the page, then, then on the set, and then in post. Yeah. I think that's very much true. I mean, and that's why, you know, I'm always interested in editors who decide to write scripts. Because I think that they have an understanding of what will end up on screen and what is, like, what is necessary to tell the story in a way that almost no one else does because they're the ones that get stuck with all the material that everyone else shot, that everyone else wrote, and they're like, all right, now i got to make something of this. They also, um, they also make so, interesting directors. The, the first movie I did, the director was uh, had come from editing, and clearly, I mean, there was not a wasted bit of film that he took, because he knew exactly what shots like, he wanted. I need this, and this, and this, and this, all the rest of this. Nope, I'm good. Um, no, it's interesting. I mean, look, obviously... Our writers don't have that luxury. This is the first time, most of the time, they've heard their script performed, and that is what is going out uh, on the podcast, come hell or high water. Fortunately, I think we do a very good job of choosing good scripts. Um, season one was really strong. I think see, the scripts we have for season two are really interesting and really strong. Uh, I think three, about three months is a great first uh, sort of step out of the gate, and, and I'm really proud of the work we've done. That's fantastic. What do you see uh, happening for the blacklist in the future? That is an excellent question to which I do not know the answer. Um, if, you could have, if you could have anything you want happen to the blacklist in the future, what, what are some of your dreams for it? Look, I'd love to be in a position where we're able to finance films. You know, and I don't know exactly what form that will take, but at the end of the day, you know, our North Star as a company is identifying and celebrating great writing. Now, the sort of, the, the complete, like the sort of optimal version of celebrating great writing is getting those movies made. And figuring out how to do that, I think, has to be long-run part of our plan. But, you know, if you look at the trajectory of the company, we started with an annual PDF that got circulated via email. We grew that into a website that supported that list. And then we grew that into a sort of real-time database that allows anyone on earth to, you know, have their script evaluated and shared it with the business. Now we're taking the best stuff there and making it available at a very low cost via the podcast to a public audience. You know, the next, one of the next few steps is certainly making actual movies. Um, and I, so I think that probably falls in the right category. You know, I can also see a version where we do we have a film festival, um, you know, that's sort of writer-driven. I think there's only really one or two writer-driven festivals in the country. 
Um, and it's equally possible that the whole thing blows up in my face and I'm out there doing a job. But, um, but, but I think, you know, what, what, what I really appreciate about the position that we're in is that we're able to do really good work on behalf of people who are doing really extraordinary work. Um, and so not being designed as a profit-optimizing company, being really designed as a mission-driven company with a very specific mission – allows us to take some big bets and do some things that are a little bit non-traditional because our, our, the, the money is not the primary goal. Um, and if it doesn't work out, you know, hopefully someone will offer me a job. Um, I'm not, I'm honestly not too worried about it. Maybe I should be, um, probably once I get a little closer to 40 or 50 than I will. I, I, got, I got three years until 40, so right. enjoy it. Yeah, I got three years. I got three years of runway before I have to get serious about my my life. There you go. Um, I tell myself before I go to sleep, and I'm like wrapped by anxiety. Is there an optimal way for people to consume these ear movies? Because, for instance, the the three months runs over two hours, and people I think who listen to yeah. podcasts are used to the half hour, one hour format. If they yeah. listen to Joe Rogan, they're talking about three hour investment, of course. <laughs> exactly. But so, what do you, do you care if people like stop and start, or would you say no? You to really get it, you got to sit down and listen to the whole thing. Um, you know, the podcast is excellent for marathon runners. <laughs> um, no, I, I people with really long commutes. Uh, no, I think we certainly don't have a problem with people who want to start and stop. I, I if it were me and I and this podcast existed, and really part of the reason this podcast exists is because it'd be something that I know that I would listen to. You know, it would be the kind of thing where. I would start listening to it on Thursday when it came out on my commute, and then I'd, you know, want to listen to the next part, and I'd hop in the car on the way home and listen to the next part. And, you know, we started actually uh, our first season breaking each script up into four episodes. Ah. Um, and and, and the, the, the one piece of feedback that we got consistently was, this is amazing, but I get into it, I get 25 minutes, 30 minutes in, and then I just want to know what happens next, and I have to wait a week. I hate you for that. <laughs> Just give it to us all at once. I mean, we live in a binge culture. That's so true. Yeah, yeah. It's available. People can listen to it as it is. You know, it's great for flights. Um, but, yeah, I mean, look, I, I would say listen to it in whatever way is best for you. Uh, you know, I think uh, it's, a great, it's a great podcast to listen to while you're exercising. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm the kind of person that if I get on a treadmill, I need something to divorce my mind from the pain my body is feeling. Um, and this is a good way to do it. And you might just find that you, you run a little bit longer because you want to listen a little bit a little bit longer. Um, but no, I mean, look, and there's also a version, and I'm sure this is a bit um, this is a bit of a fantasy. But I would love for this to happen. Um, you know, I, I do sort of imagine you know date night or or for some of our more family friendly ones. You know, you know, there are all these photos of like families sitting around the radio yeah. with, with a fire going. <laughs> You know, listening to a radio play, you know, in the 40s and 30s, and and there's a version of that. In fact, there's a script that will come out on December 17th called The Winter King, which is a G-rated, maybe PG, like if we're being real, like because there's like some cartoonish violence, but it is a Christmas action comedy, uh, sort of informed by Lord of the Rings, and um, you know, you could gather the entire family from 8 to 80 around wherever you listen, you know, whatever speaker system you have that you can connect to your iPhone with a fire going next to the Christmas tree and listen to it. And I, I genuinely believe that everyone, you know, 8 to 80 will laugh and enjoy it and, and be smiling afterwards. And so, you know, again, I don't know that that's a part of modern life, mm-hmm. but wouldn't it be cool if it was? Yeah. You know, and, and certainly... I invite and encourage anyone who does listen to the podcast, December 17th, through Christmas Day, get some hot chocolate, get some popcorn, get your family around a fire, listen to The Winter King. Um, it was actually co-written by two guys who play Santa Claus professionally. <laughs> really? I wish I, 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 I couldn't make that up. That's fantastic. Um, and, and, I, and if you're looking for a way for your family to sort of be together without a screen... And without like and actually connecting and enjoying something together, I'm gonna I'm gonna put my money on it being a fulfilling experience. And it's free. You don't even have to leave the house exactly. per ticket. It is a hundred percent free. You only have to listen to me do ads for like a total of a minute across the entire thing. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean I think 
again, probably a fantasy, but I would love to see it happen. And if anybody does do that, take a photo, either email it to us or tweet it at us at, at @earmovies. We will happily share it with the world, and you will probably make my 2015. That's fantastic. Um, if there are screenwriters out there that go, how do I get my screenplay in front of these guys? What, what can they do? Uh, you're going to want to go to our website, which is uh, blacklist.com with no vowels, so B-L-C-K-L-S-T. Um, you know, I won't belabor the process, but you, you can host your script on the site. It's $25 a month. You can pay $50 to have it evaluated by one of our readers, all of whom have worked in the industry professionally and as a paid employment for at least a year. They're further vetted by me. 15% of the people who we've, uh, who, we, who applied with that minimum of experience have been offered jobs reading for us. They really are the best of the best of people you can at the lowest price we could possibly set it and not, you know, no longer exist. Um, and, um, yeah, just go to the website, check it out. The other thing I'd say is, is one of the things I'm most proud of about our company is the quality of our customer service. If anything doesn't make sense on the website, email us. We're happy to answer any questions that you have. Great. So how, how do people find the blacklist again? I mean, I know you just gave the website, but what other outlets are you guys on besides that? Blacklist.com with no vowels, B-L-C-K-L-S-T.com. We are on Twitter at the B-L-C-K-L-S-T. We're on Instagram in the same place. We're on Twitter with the podcast at at Movies. I'm at Franklin Leonard. Hit us up literally anywhere, and uh, we will get back to you as soon as we possibly can. That's fantastic. Well, I think you're doing a really interesting and novel um, project as far as podcasting goes, let alone the movie industry. Franklin, and I want to thank you for uh, spending time talking to us. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Okay. Talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Take care. Thanks again to Franklin Leonard for being a guest on the show. You can check out his website at blacklist.com. That's blacklist with no vowels, B-L-C-K-L-S-T. Com. I will also have a link on our blog for this episode at SuccotashShow.com, so you can just click through there if you want to come visit. Uh, so check that out, won't you? Okay, this next piece is well and truly a Succotash exclusive. You heard me mention the project I worked on when I was talking to Franklin with Dana Carvey about eight or nine years ago. It was a movie script we did called The Happy Idiot about a guy named Leo da Vinci who undergoes a scientific experiment and becomes basically the smartest guy in the world. Before that happens, he accidentally receives a full-ride scholarship to college and thinks that he's quite brilliant, even though he is a complete and utter numbskull. <laughs> he gets involved in the crazy experiments of a college professor, Edward Lingerer, and well, one thing leads to another and he becomes a genius. Not just intellectually, he can basically do anything he wants to, martial arts, music, anything. Well, Dana and I wrote this script based on this idea that Dana had, and along with audio genius Paul Wright, we recorded the entire thing. Dana did most of the main character voices, I did some of them, and read the narrative voice, and, well, here's a scene that happens at a college bar called The Think Tank, where they have a big intellectual competition every year, and Leo shows up, he's just beginning to feel his genius. For heat number one, let's please welcome a junior at Pratt College majoring in physical science from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Harold Woodbine. It's night at the think tank. An area of the club has been set up to resemble a TV game show. A bright neon sign proclaims Quizmaster Competition, and the stage features three brightly painted podiums. Sets of bleachers ring the area filled with fans. The two end podiums are vacant. A drum roll starts. There's a polite smattering of applause as a smart-looking guy, Harold Woodbine, walks out. We go to the booth. The announcer, Jerry Pollock, pours over his fact sheets. For those of you just joining us, welcome to this year's quarterfinal round of the Quizmaster competition. The prize, the right to face Branson's three-time defending champion, Perry the Brain Prunkfall. Looking at tonight's first heat, many people are touting Harold Woodbine as the heir apparent to the Quizmaster crown. Woodbine's genes are certainly in the right place. His father was valedictorian in 1964 at Princeton. Interesting sidebar, he loves puzzles. Down on the competition stage, the host reads from an index card. Please welcome on podium number two, currently an undeclared freshman at Pratt College from right here in Beaverville, Leonardo da Vinci. Leo walks onto the stage carrying a can of Catalyst. Reaching the podium, he presses the big red answer button. An extremely loud, raspy buzzer sounds, and a light at the front of the podium comes on. (laughs) 
Mr. Da Vinci. Mr. Da Vinci. Mr. Da Vinci, please. Don't press the buzzer until you're ready to answer the question. Oh, sorry. It's just that it's so buzzy. <laughs> you just want to hear that buzz. <laughs> the host pulls a card from a stack on his podium. Let's get started. First question. A wire one one-hundredth of an inch diameter is wound into a ball to a diameter of 24 inches. What would be the total length of the wire? Leo and Harold both slap at their buzzers. Leo wins. 1,454 miles, 2,880 feet. Correct. A light turns on in the front of Leo's podium. <laughs> but I got no idea what anybody'd want to do with a big old ball of spindly wire. Up in the booth, the announcer is stunned. Hold the ugly and grab me a sort of surprise. Da Vinci couldn't be more relaxed, and Woodbine looks stunned. Later, down on the competition stage, there are no lights lit on Woodbine's podium, while Leo's show four lit bulbs. Gentlemen, using the blackboards, two gorgeous knockouts in tight black miniskirts, are wheeling a pair of large blackboards on stage. Sketch the path of the particle position function and draw the velocity and acceleration vectors for the given value of t. You have three minutes. Jeopardy-type thinking music begins. Later on the stage, we come back in on Harold, who is writing furiously on the blackboard. The formula is almost complete. The music ends. Gentlemen, that is time. Chalk down, please. We'll begin with Mr. Woodbine. The host strolls to Harold's blackboard. Nice try. It looks to be about 80% complete. But we needed a finished, correct equation. Sorry. Harold bows his head. Now let's go to Mr. Da Vinci. The host crosses to Leo's blackboard and turns it around, revealing an intricate chalk Norman Rockwell-esque illustration of Harold solving his problem, as seen from Leo's point of view. Uh, the equation was a cinch, but capturing the nape of his neck, that was a woolly mammoth. A uh, nice illustration, Mr. Da Vinci, but we were looking for the completed equation. Uh, the equation, it's right there. See, on the chalkboard I drew. Leo points to the picture. The host leans in and sees that Leo's drawing contains the solved equation. Uh, Yes, yeah, so it is. Uh, remarkable. You are correct. <laughs> he turns to face the crowd as the fifth light comes on Leo's podium. Mr. Da Vinci is the winner. If I didn't know any better, I'd have to say Da Vinci is some kind of super genius. So that was a chunk of The Happy Idiot, a movie that will likely never see the light of day. It's time now to rummage around in the old tweet sack. Hello, Tweety. Our repository of tweets, emails, and anything else that commits suck attached to the social media sphere. Interestingly enough, I usually only hear from Doug Benson when he doesn't seem to be happy with me. This past week, I mentioned his Doug Loves Movies in my podcast I'm also listening to section of my podcast review on the Huffington Post. My main review is on the final episode of Nerd Poker. But I also mentioned Doug Loves Movies and the Robin Slim show, which I was a guest on last week. Doug tweeted a response to my also listening to message, which reads, Succotash Show, your mention of me is as long as his! Exclamation point. Now, I don't want to jump to conclusion, but it feels like he's complaining that I didn't give his show more ink. Kind of hard to tell with that few characters, but that's that's the feeling I get. Hell, Robin Slim had me on their show, Doug. Next time you come to San Francisco, give me a holler. Let me play the Leonard Malton game and see how much ink you get then. Hmm? I had a DM on Twitter from past guest and friend of Succotash, Hal Lublin, just the other day. I've interviewed Hal the past three SF Sketch Fests when he's been here in town to perform, and he says, looks like I'll be up in SF again this year. Shall we chat again? I might even be able to get Gags to join us. Now, by Gags, he means Mark Gagliardi, and the two of them are hosting this new This Year podcast, We've Got This. So that's hopefully a date. They will both be up here performing in a slice off of the departed thrilling adventure hour for Sketchfest, and we'll get the skinny, the lowdown, the poop, and the hoop to do. Had a nice posting on Facebook from Frank Santopadre, or a nice mention there. The side uh, kick to Gilbert Gottfried and his amazing colossal podcast, thanking me for reviewing their recent episode with Chevy Chase. Great episode, by the way, if you haven't heard it yet. You know, Gilbert's clearly the star of that podcast, but Frank is the thing that keeps everything running smoothly. Don't fool yourself. Got a note from comedian Lee Camp, the Radicals Radical, who hosts Redacted tonight. He's got a new stand-up special available on YouTube at youtube.com slash redacted tonight. Be sure to check it out. Also feel free to drop by our home site and click on the link to it. I'll put it up in the blog on succotashshow.com. 
Oh, well, I'm in this recording session for this episode of Succotash. I'm also going to be recording some lines for the Cosm Earth Christmas Spectacular. I got a request from Dr. Norman Trousers asking if I would, and I will. Hopefully, I already did. I'll have to check that out and see if I actually got around to it. Now, I don't pretend to understand the tweet I got last week from Green Raver stating, You eats at that cankly dog biscuit. <laughs> That's right. You eats at that cankly dog biscuit. I don't know what that means. Anyone? A quick decipher to me at mark at com might clear everything up. All right, that's about all I could find. There are no comments on our libs in sight. There are no new reviews on iTunes. Friends, please, we need your favorable reviews and comments to grow the crap out of Succotash. And if you're not going to give us money by clicking on our donation button or shopping through our Amazon link at SuccotashShow.com or buying some merch from our Succotashery, you can at least throw us a bone and give us a glowing review. That pandering aside, let's get to that list of folks who have been kind and decent enough to tweet, retweet, like, heart, DM, or otherwise help us get the word out there about our humble show. Rob McMillan, Robin Slim, Joey B., Greg Hardy, Jeffrey Welchman, Raining Lunatic, M. Rondianga, Quirky Knievel, What's a Podcast, Real Kim Hansen, Samantha Pet, Dot1541, Gormless Moo, George Grimwood, Zombie Mom, The Naked Porch Podcast, Tom Jackson Jr., Mimi Toll, Casanova.audio, DJSL22, Comic Book Jones, Primetime Chuckles, Pre-Yunk Sony, Bill Sweeney, The Slant, The Mo Show Podcast, The Podcast Digest, Podcasts Trending, FYFC Podcast, The Angry Chimp, Heating Tumps, Thomas, Julia Jasunas, Moshan Melvin, After Droid, Ice in the Face, Dave Hoge, Greek uh, Geek Master Blaster, Barry Crimmins, Dr. Pistol Pete, Beer League Talk, S. Anthony Thomas, Reasons Are Several, EMA Hip Hop Podcast, Changes in Latitudes, The Vince Wild Show, AM Podcast Network, Bass Face 28, Awesome Talk, Exclamation point. DAPF Pod Neil C. Shane Gray. The All Seeing Guys. ADO Radio. Wooden Overcoats. Astro Radio Z. David Essex Butler. Comical Podcast. Davian Dent. DNM Records. Eric Fisher. Illusionoid. Constant Struggle Pod. Primal Cast. Nick Watson. Sweet Feathery Jesus. Yellow City Podcast. Good Morning You Drunks. Vision Live, Sideshow Network, Mike Russo, Ms. Mary Contrary, Hunter Block, Phil Lairness, The Fear Agenda, Elite Geek, Geek Blast Radio, Hollywood Rock and Wrap Up, Drunken Dork Podcast, Lori, Brian T. Shirley, Agent Nigel, The All Seeing Guys. Did I mention them already? I think I did. Hmm, interesting. Double, double pump, guys. Double, W-O-A-P Radio, Paul Thompson. Frank D. Piazza, Rick Carr, Three Guys On, Kelly Carlin, Eden Dranger, Elisa Romero, Ken Board, Eliak, Shayla La La La, <laughs> No Lie, Luvo, Alexis Guerreros, Alex Middleton, Sierra Asti, Ryan McRae, The Gary Hour, San Francisco 552, SpookyMeat.com, Sphere Control SEO, Dave's Travel Corner, Kate Oman, Rue Moya, Janelle Murphy, The Music Revolution, Angry Oz, Derek Robertson, Salty Language Pod, Passersby Podcast, DAPF Pod, Annalise, Ear Goggles, Daniel Turlizzi, and Ashley. Thank you, everybody. If, you, uh, if you'd like to go beyond the tweets, you can email me at marc at markhershon.com or give us a call on the Succotash hotline, 818-921-7212. And what, tell us what's on your mind, or do you have a podcast you want to tell us about? I, it doesn't matter. You can call that number. It's not toll-free, but you can call it and leave a message. We'll play it on the show. And remember to stay tuned after Bill Hay- Haywatt says goodbye for a special song about this time of year from Abner Surd. All right, our next installment is going to be a Succotash Clips, I'm pretty sure, and we will bring you a buffet of podcast snippets from all over the place. In the meantime, 
Won't you please remember to pass the succotash? Goodbye. You've been listening to Succotash, the comedy podcast podcast with your host, Mark Hershon. Brought to you by Henderson's Pants and... Imagine your company's name right here. Find us on the web at SuccotashShow.com, on iTunes, on Stitcher Smart Radio, and on SoundCloud. You can also hear us streaming and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Succotash Show. Email us at MARC at SuccotashShow.com. Or call into the Succotash hotline at our non-toll-free call number, 818. 818- 8921-7212. Suckatash is produced and engineered with the kind assistance of Joe Paulino through the auspices of Studio P. Sausalito, home of the hit. Our associate producer is Tyson Saner. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is Kenny Durgins. Until next time, I am your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please pass the Suckatash. Goodbye. Oh, I'm the opposite of a tree. I think on that we can agree. The ground is getting cold. The leaves are turning gold and then they're falling down. The tree has lost its crown. But I'm the opposite of a tree. I think on that we can agree. Oh, I'm growing out my hair to keep the icy winter air from blowing right between my ears and freezing up my mental gears. And that's the opposite of a tree. I think on that we can agree. The snow is getting deep. The trees have gone to sleep and they don't even know they're standing in the snow. But I'm the opposite of a tree. I think on that we can agree. Oh, I'm pulling on my socks and then another pair of socks and then my thermal undersuits and then a rubber pair of boots. Cause I'm the opposite of a tree. I think on that we can agree But all the trees in spring will grow another ring And they'll roll out their sleeves and dress their limbs with leaves But I'm the opposite of a tree I think on that we can agree Oh, I'm taking off my coat And then the scarf around my throat And then the sweater off my back And then I'll give my hair a whack Cause I'm the opposite of a tree I think on that we can agree Cause I'm the opposite of a tree I think on that we can agree Cause I'm the opposite of a tree I think on that we can agree